Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the federal government forces all new cars to be electric or hybrid by 2035. Where will we get the power in critical minerals? Plus, we continue our year in review series as we take a closer look at Vancouver and Surrey civic politics. And federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev drops by. Is he the prime minister in waiting or did he peak too soon? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Welcome back to the show. Joining us now is Peter Shashecki, registered financial planner and president of the Everything Financial Group. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, I was speaking to our producer, Jerry. Uh, you're, are you in Mexico right now? I am. I'm Christmas vacation. I'm, I'm in Mexico with the joke is with the kidney stone after your last story. It's like, really? Did you have to play that story just oh, before I went on air? I didn't know you were listening in. My apologies. Oh, I always listen in. Come on. I always, <laughs> always catch the 15 minutes before me just to yeah. see what's going on. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, borrowing money to invest. Uh, are you getting people asking you this question, especially where, with where rates are at this point? We're getting it all the time, more and more because of, um, well, let's face it, we have high tax rates, Mm -hmm. and people are always looking for ways to save on taxes, and they've heard some things about making your house tax deductible, et cetera, so they they just want to know the information on it, because it is one of those things people are having a problem finding the information on, so we're going to try and give them some, the basic, you know, Cole's notes on it, if you will. Why would you do this if lending rates are, you know, Close to what seven percent? Yeah, well, if you if you have a, a home equity line of credit rate of about seven point two to seven point seven percent, but imagine this: you're saving in a lot of cases, and this is one of the tax brackets, kind of the starting point. If you're saving thirty eight percent on taxes, I don't know. When I do math, seven versus thirty eight, hmm, thirty one percent difference. I'll take the seven every day of the week. Ah, okay, makes sense. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to really focus on whether it's um, an investment strategy or a tax strategy. Yeah, and it is definitely a tax strategy. And this this was big back in the early 90s, or late 90s, sorry, where people were selling these things when the markets were going crazy and promising the sun, the, the world, the moon, and everything else in between. And it's not a get-money, get-rich-quick strategy. It is strictly for taxes. Now, if you so happen to be fortunate enough and the stars align and you make a little extra investment money on it, well, more power to you, but that's bonus money. Tax strategy first. You have to come out ahead on the cost, ahead on the taxes, and if those numbers work, then it's a good strategy. Uh, Does that work with mutual funds? Not really. I mean, because one of the things is, and this is sticking with the tax strategy thing, is I wouldn't do it with mutual funds. And there's a lot of recommendations out there from economists who look at this, don't do it with mutual funds for a couple reasons. One, you can't write off the fees in mutual funds. And it's the extra fees you're able to write off with using a portfolio manager that really pushed this over the top as a great tax strategy. The other thing is, most importantly, liquidity. You need to do this in something that can be... Um, liquid right away the next day because what if things 
change in the economy, change in your tax situation, and you need to cash in the investments that are part of this strategy, you need something low in volatility, mm-hmm. quick on liquidity, so you can have a, a you know a back door to get out if you need to, because as we know, things change, and you have to have an exit strategy with any financial planning or any investing for that matter. You always plan on worst case scenario and always need an exit strategy. Now, should you um, put money perhaps in, into RSPs or TFSAs? Well, you can't. That this tax-deductible strategy mm-hmm. does not work with RSPs and TFSAs. It's a government, it's a CRA rule, okay. so you can't do it with those. So if you're already doing RSPs and they're giving you a great tax deduction, but you need further tax deductions, it's worth talking to your registered financial planner. Have them make this as part of a strategy, as, a, as part of your overall tax strategy and financial plan. It's not a strategy on its own. It's kind of a addendum, and it's an extra to doing some of the other things. But when you run out of, you know, the proper limits for RSPs, maybe because it's going to put you in a different bracket or you just don't have enough room or whatever the case may be, then this is an extra item you can look at as a great tax-deductible strategy. Mm-hmm. But you've got to have all the pros and cons before you make the decision. You can't just think, that sounds great. I think I'll go do that. No, there's a lot of things to weigh in on a lot of times it might take someone three to four meetings with their registered financial planner to really get the gist of this and see if it's the right strategy for them. And that's okay because it's always better to err on the side of caution. And again, always plan for the worst case scenario, not the shot in the dark home run scenario. Uh, next week is uh, obviously Christmas holidays. A lot of folks are going to be spending a lot of time with family. Uh, I want to ask you a question just off this topic, just for a moment. But sure, looking, no at, looking into twenty twenty four for a moment, um, you know, we were talking about potential lending rates of seven percent at this particular point. Give me a sense of what you think is going to happen next year when it comes to interest rates uh, for Canadians, because it's the n- number one issue: affordability. A well, lot of folks carrying a lot of debt, and it's been tough for them. What do you? see and it's a difficult question to answer i first want to admit that but what do you see in 2024 based on inflation what's going on we should have already seen honestly jazz at least a one percent reduction in interest rates and there's a lot of economists who have said the same thing and the economists and all the top ones are predicting two three four percent two or three or four not percent sorry two or three or four adjustments Mm -hmm. to interest rates next year And you've just got to read the Bank of Canada notes and see why interest rates are still being held this high. Unfortunately, this is supposed to be a financial update show, and the reason interest rates are held this high is a political reason, not a financial reason, but they're supposed to be within 2% of inflation. You learn that in, in Economics 101 in university, and the gap between interest rates and inflation right now is a lot steeper than that, and we should see declines if uh, the economists and everyone else is right we should see those declines sometime in 2024 but they should be sooner rather than later if we follow simple basic economics 101 well it, it is the number one issue and i do have pierre Polyev on the show at five o'clock to talk a little bit about uh, affordability uh, at that time because it is one of the big issues that people talk about on this show uh and i don't blame them i mean with your mortgage payments and money you've borrowed it's gone up so significantly in regards to just you know staying up with with the bills and, and i really hope it does happen sooner than rather than later for a lot of folks uh peter if i don't speak to you next week my friend merry christmas happy new year to you. Look forward to chatting with you very soon. 
You bet. And I'll be I'll be on next week. I hear with Rob uh, Faye doing the thing. So I thought when I heard Rob's on, it's kind of like old home week from our d- years ago. So I'll definitely be on uh, talking with him. And you have a great Christmas with your family. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back to the show. Well, as 2023 comes to a close, we're looking back uh, at some of the biggest local stories for the past 12 months. Yesterday, we focused on the Fraser Valley, and I thought it was very important that we focused on Vancouver and Surrey as well. Combined, there's probably well over 1.2 million people that live uh, in both communities. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the year that was in Vancouver politics. We'll talk a little bit about Surrey as well. Joining us now is Frances Bula. She's a political contributor for the Globe and Mail. Good afternoon, Frances. Hey, Jazz. Nice to be here. Nice to be, uh, nice to chat with you as well. Lots to talk about. I don't know where to start, to be honest with you. Let's uh, maybe start with uh, probably the last uh, uh, controversy of the year. That would be the Vancouver Park Board and City Council passing a motion that formally asked the province to, to dissolve the city's elected, elected park board. And of course, humongous pushback, not only from ABC councillors uh, on the park board, but past councillors as well. What, what's your take on all of that? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like my take on everything that's happening there. Uh, You know, it's a little bit confusing, like what's happening and why and who's really in control, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, this came, this move with the park board, even the councillors who are now supporting it, they didn't find out about it until the mayor had scheduled his news conference. You know, so it's not like he went to his caucus and said, here's what I'm thinking of doing. It was a very, I've had someone describe it to me as a very CEO-type move, Um, you know, and I've seen this with people who go into politics from business. They don't quite grasp that government isn't really like their private company, and they continue to sort of consult with a trusted group and, you know, okay, I've decided this is the way things in the company should go, and they, they don't get the whole public engagement part necessarily so <laughs> well when you dissect it a little bit here um he's got uh, former colleagues or present colleagues who clearly do not trust him uh, those are the abc park board uh, commissioners uh you have i i believe one of the uh, the school board trustees who ran as an abc uh trustee but uh isn't an abc trustee but has been supporting abc motions on school board he's in support of keeping the park board and he's been propping up a lot of the decisions made by school board i mean they may have, abc may have lost um their majority not only at the park board but at the school board as well i mean where, how does this end i mean i i just can't see david eby and the cabinet ndp cabinet going yeah we'll we'll, we'll deal with your mess rather than 
Why don't you consult with First Nations communities and come back to us? It doesn't seem like this is going to be decided and fixed anytime soon. No, I don't think the province is any in any rush, especially after the Surrey fiasco, to just do whatever the latest council decides is, you know, um, the, the the thing to do. So I think they're going to take their time and let things play out. And um, you know, I had thought they might even say there there needed to be a referendum on something like this. Uh, which you know, I I think that possibly could um, the, the mayor's point of view could prevail in a referendum like a lot of people don't really get park board Mm -hmm. um you know uh uh, we already only have 30 or 40 percent turnout even for like city council and then when it comes to park board typically people just vote you know in the same pattern uh that they voted for council you know whichever party they're supporting there so it's not like they're they're supporting particular um commissioners because they admire their work or anything like that. It does tend to be on party lines. Mm-hmm. So, But I, my guess is that the province has put in enough conditions that this is just going to muddle along for a while. It's not going to happen instantly. Could you see this t- t- taking the entire term? Uh, possibly. Um, you know, they, I mean, the province has a lot of other things on its plate, and it doesn't need to get embroiled in something that clearly is, um, you know, whatever you think of Park Board. And a lot of people, there's very divided opinions about it, but a lot of people felt like the process wasn't handled very well. Mm-hmm. And you have a super motivated vocal group uh, that is consists of uh, people from complete opposite sides of the political spectrum who are saying, you know, it's an outrage and an affront to democracy and, you know, all the rest of it. So, um, you know, I think the province is going to let that all percolate for a while while they're, while they're dealing with, you know, quite frankly, much more serious issues. You yeah, know, absolutely. Toxic medical stuff, toxic drug crisis, housing, you know, every other thing under the sun. Um, Park, yeah. Vancouver Park Board's not going to be the biggest priority. No. Uh, I, I, let's just touch on housing just for a second. Your thoughts on the two largest municipalities in British Columbia, Vancouver and Surrey. Um, how do you think, you have a sense of how these provincial legislations will play out in these respective communities, in this case Vancouver and Surrey? You know, I would love to know that. <laughs> Believe <Yeah. laughs> me, there's nobody want, who wants to know more than me, partly because I live 600 meters from a, uh, a new SkyTrain station on Broadway. Mm. Um, and I am not clear, and I don't think anybody in the cities is clear. Like, uh, you know, what conditions do they still get to impose on housing? Can they set, you know, what kind of protections can they put in for renters? Because typically that's negotiated when you do a rezoning. But if the if the province is saying no, no rezoning, this is just what's allowed within uh, X number of meters. Well, how does the city negotiate that? Mm. And can you put in design guidelines? You know, Vancouver's always had a policy that you know you have to have 80 foot separation between towers, and you know certain guidelines to try to make even taller buildings, you know, more neighborly and fit in at the ground plane. It's actually been quite nice compared to Burnaby, where they just let anyone put up any concrete chunk of 
whatever along the Lougheed Highway, and, you know, whether anyone can walk on the street next to it is, you know, pure chance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, Vancouver's always had pretty sophisticated design guidelines, and will those be still in place, and what overrides what? Like, that's really unclear. And to tell you the truth, everything I hear from planners in the background is they're all running around themselves trying to understand what does the city still get to control, mm-hmm. uh, e- even with the provincial legislation saying you have to allow for a lot more density, you know, uh, here, there, and, and, and in this in this yeah. other place. I was just reading some analysis by the city of uh, uh, Richmond. It was a public document, and uh, the, the what they wrote in their analysis is pretty much how you described it. Everybody is running around trying to figure this out. But let's get to Vancouver, back to Vancouver, just for a second. When we talked about the park board a little bit, you've got the dismantling of the East uh, Hastings encampment. There's, of course, still conversation around the Stanley Park bike lane, uh, of course, the the Stanley Park train as well up and running during Christmas, but that's been an ongoing issue as well. Do you think Ken Sim has been able to define himself, or is he? It, it, they just seem incredibly unorganized over there. Maybe it's my sense. I, I could be completely wrong here, but my sense from the city so far is they haven't really, you know, they they haven't found their feet yet. They don't they don't seem grounded in regards to running civic government. Am I wrong well, here? You and I have talked about this before, and yeah, I find that they're having a hard time steering their ship. You know, there's been incredible changeover in the mayor's office. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember, you know, two or three chiefs of staff, um, two or three comms people who've come and gone. And, um, and, and then what's really interesting to me like I've always known every chief of staff with every uh, with every mayor. They're mm-hmm. usually really strong characters. They're like the vice principal of the high school, right? They keep things going while the, the other guys out front. Yeah. And we don't really know who these people are. Like um, uh, uh, the, the the mayor's special advisor, David Grewal, who's paid one hundred and thirty five thousand dollars a year, doesn't speak to the media. Um, we have no idea what kind of advice he might be giving. Um, Trevor Ford is a little bit more, you know, communicative. But, again, it's people with not a lot of experience in civic government or any level of government, really. They're more like campaigners or business people or whatever. And I just don't get the sense of a really coordinated, cohesive team uh, in the way that whatever you thought of Gregor Robertson, he had a really tight team. He kept his caucus together, and they had big fights in the background, yeah. you know, but he, he kept that together, and you're not seeing that here. Like, you're seeing these little cracks. Um, obviously, the park board is a really big crack, um, and then it's hard to tell what is the image. What is he trying to project? Because, you know, it's sort of, we want to treat homeless people with compassion, and that's why we're hiring nurses, but we're going to kick them all off Hastings Street. Uh or, you know, there's these kind of contradictory vibes <laughs> that are coming out of yeah, the office. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I got that sense of Gregor Robertson, Philip Owen, uh, Larry Campbell. They had staff behind them who you I mean, could talk yeah, to. You like, just didn't get it. You got a sense of at least, okay, this is why they're making the decisions they're making. You're not yeah. getting the sense this is a mature political machine, and that's no, the core issue. No, a mature political machine, that's, that's a good description of it. Yeah, no... I don't. There's no sense that these people have experience or understand really how city halls or or kind of municipal politics works. 
Like even though Larry Campbell at the head of COPE, like COPE split very early. Mm-hmm. You know, Ken's ABC team is starting to emulate that in, in some ways, but they had super strong staff. I mean, Jeff Meggs was his chief of staff, and he had Vanessa Geary doing housing policy, and he had a strong communications team and all the rest of it. This is just kind of all over the place. They're floundering. They really are. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Frances Bueller. She's a political contributor for the Globe and Mail. We're talking about Vancouver civic politics. We're going to spend a couple of minutes talking about Surrey for a moment. Uh, Frances, uh, earlier today, I tweeted out a couple of pictures I got my hands on. It's a, it's a mailer that's going out to Surrey uh, homeowners and businesses, which says stop the NDP Surrey tax. So basically, uh, they're saying that any property tax increase or significant property tax increase, which many expect uh, Surrey residents will see very soon for next year that can all be blamed on the NDP the provincial NDP what do you make about this uh, policing issue do you think it's just a question of the provincial government throwing in a little bit more money and this will be dealt with or do you think this is going to continue for a while I don't know this is starting to feel like a grudge match you know um, that uh, it's, it's, it just sort of doesn't matter because uh, Mayor Locke for, has, just doesn't like anything the provincial government is doing like she's also now scrapping with them over school sites or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not sure anymore uh, what the rationale is. And with the police thing, you know, it actually, none of it makes any sense anymore to anybody. It's there. There are arguments on both sides for keeping the RCMP or having a municipal force, but I don't think anyone's listening to those anymore. It's sort of turned into my team against your team thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and the decisions have been made and the legislation has been brought in. And yes, you can hire lawyers, you can challenge it, uh, all of those types of things. My argument is, well, if you're trying to squeeze a few more dollars, we'll sit down with the government and squeeze some more dollars out of them. And look, let's have this conversation. But I'm not sure how this over the long term is remotely going to be successful in regard to stopping SPS, the Surrey Police Service. Yeah, no, it's hard to see, and I'm not sure what the long-term political uh, uh, game plan is. Is it, uh, you know, people setting up to run for the BC United Party? Uh, You know, I don't know what, because, yeah, this kind of combativeness in public is very unusual, and it doesn't seem to be about negotiating. No. You know, because as you say, if it was about negotiating, there's ways and ways of doing it. It's more like a bombing campaign or something like that. So... Um, I think it's going to continue. I mean, I I don't think the NDP want to see the attacks, obviously, as they head into a provincial election, and Surrey Mm. matters in a significant way. But if you look at the polling, they're going to do fine in Surrey. I mean, I think if the BC Liberal or BC United manage to hold on to the two seats that they have right now, looking at where they're in the polls, I think they'd be happy. Uh, I'm not sure they're going to be making any, uh, you know, uh, big changes there. There, There's some challenges there. No, they're in a very sweet spot because the right is divided. You know, yeah. and and it doesn't necessarily mean that people think the NDP is doing everything fabulous, but but the the opposition vote is is divided for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, overall, the issue of of the year for you, what would it what would it be? It doesn't have to be Vancouver, sorry, is housing sort of the number one issue in regards to what the provincial government has done and the potential impact it could have? I mean, I think 
what the province is doing, uh, and we'll see if this turns into the fast ferries or the greatest thing since sliced bread, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they are taking amazing action on housing, or they're, you know, they're they're bringing in, like, unbelievably uh, radical changes. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which and I, you know, I think they're really hoping that that it's going to make a difference, even in a fairly short time, if they can kind of limit how much, um, how many units are rented out short term or you know used by vacationers or whatever, in the short term and then in the long term have a lot of you know new housing on the horizon. Uh, it, it's really stunning, actually, uh, when you when you look at the, the scope of changes. Like, because I follow housing in every state and all across the provinces, and there's nobody else doing anything quite this aggressive, with the possible exception of California. But their their laws are so different there, and there there's so many workarounds and things like that. Like, really, BC is. They, like David Eby has just pulled and Ravi Callan have pulled out everything in the policy book from around the world that they think might work and they're throwing it at the wall and it's sort of amazing and really the municipalities are now in reaction mode uh, no, more than anything. I agree with you. I've had Eric Woodward on. I've talked to a lot of the mayors on this show. I'm The premier is sitting right across from where I'm sitting right now in the studio and he said exactly that we have to take big swings and boy are they taking big swings and I congratulate that for them. It may, they may, all the legislation may not stick but it's exactly where I think the public want to see questions how will they implement it? And that's where I think the public remains skeptical at this particular point. But taking big swings, I think they're doing it. That's for sure. Francis, we run out of time. Uh, if I don't speak to you, Merry well, Christmas, Happy so New Year to you. It's we'll always, see what happens next year. Oh, it'll be a busy year. That's for sure. Merry yeah. Christmas to you. Yeah, you too. An anxious electorate, a new look, and a bite out of liberal polling numbers have all boosted the profile of conservative leader Pierre Polyev, who was picked by editors across the country as the Canadian Press 2023 Newsmaker of the Year today. The official opposition leader now heads into 2024 after months of rising support in the polls, while Justin Trudeau and his Liberals have been trailing. Liberals have been scrambling to catch up with the Conservatives' effective messaging on issues like housing and the cost of living crisis felt by many, many Canadians. Joining me now to discuss all that has transpired in 2023 is is Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. Polyev, thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you. Lots to talk about. Um, you know, in the last year, your polling numbers uh, have gone up significantly. Uh, many view you as a prime minister in waiting. If you could look back a little bit, can you point to one or two moments or points that you think made a difference for you this year in regards to uh, connecting with Canadians? I think it's when I stood in front of a house in Vancouver that was falling apart and uh, probably 50 years old, and I said, uh, this house is now running for $5 million. Uh, And um, it kind of brought to light how crazy real estate prices and the cost of housing have gotten after eight years of Trudeau, who's doubled the cost of rent, mortgage payments, and down payments, and made Canada's housing market probably the most overpriced in the developed world in just eight years. Uh, By contrast, I've been offering a common sense plan to require cities permit 15% more housing per year uh, and permit high-rises around all future federally funded transit stations as a condition of getting federal money. 
Um, I'm planning to sell off 6,000 federal buildings and thousands of acres of federal land so we can build, build, build. So in other words, people see the contrast that under Trudeau, house, housing costs have doubled. And under my common sense plan, we can return to affordable housing like we had eight years ago when I was the housing minister. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would point to is inflation. I predicted that Trudeau printing $600 billion of cash would bid up the cost of the goods we buy and the interest we pay. He denied it, and it turned out I was right. And now people say, look, Polyev's common sense plan to axe the carbon tax and cap spending so we balance the budget and bring down inflation and interest rates is the only way we're going to get ahead. So the choice for Canadians is really, do you want a costly coalition of Trudeau and the NDP that taxes your food and punishes your work and doubles your housing cost and unleashes crime in your community or a common sense conservative prime minister that frees you to earn a powerful paycheck that buys affordable food, gas and homes and safe neighborhoods. Did you make the conscious effort to focus on the economy and the, uh, and the, and the, and the pocketbook? I mean, you saw that initially, you thought that was what was really impacting Canadians. That's what you wanted to talk about. Yes. Uh, let's touch on just housing just for a moment. You you, you mentioned a little bit about uh, standing in front of that uh, 50-year-old house. I think it was selling for $5 million. Uh, here in British Columbia, the, the provincial NDP uh, has introduced significant provincial legislation, which bigfoots local governments when it comes to zoning, density, and approvals. Uh, you have the federal government's housing accelerator fund. Uh, they've also talked about uh, limiting GST on rental builds. They're literally making deals with municipalities directly. Uh, outside the provincial government. You touched a little bit on what you'd like to see done. How much of an impact in your mind do you think your government or any federal government can have on local pricing when it comes to housing? I think we can have an impact by incentivizing the cities to speed up, speed up and lower the cost of permits while freeing up land to build on. Um, but the way you have to do it is through an incentive that pays for results, not promises. And this is the key difference. Trudeau is giving big fat checks to mayors so that they'll hold photo ops with him where they promise there'll be a bunch of new housing. It's not clear if that housing is stuff that would have been built anyway, or if they're blocking some other housing to neutralize any benefit. What I propose is to make a simple mathematical formula that says every major municipality has to permit 15% more home completions or they lose federal money. If they beat the target, they get even more money. They beat it by 10%, they get 10% more. If they miss it by 10%, they get 10% less. In other words, I'm proposing to pay the local bureaucracy like realtors get paid, based on volume and outcomes, Mm -hmm. not based on promises and photo ops. Uh, Secondly, we need to make it mandatory, not encourage, mandatory, that if the feds fund a transit station, there has to be sky rises all around it so that our seniors and youth can live next to buses and trains. Third, we've got thousands and thousands of unused federal buildings. Let's sell them off and let's build on them with a covenant that the housing on that land has to be affordable to people. And then next, I would say that CMHC, the federal bureaucracy that approves financing for apartments, should do it in two months, not two years. And we should put it in law that if the executives don't hit the two-month target, they're fired. That's the way the real world works. Too long we've been paying off bureaucrats to do a terrible job and with great human suffering as a result, and they just get another check. My approach is to pay for results, not promises, and that's how we're going to bring homes people can afford. Um, 
The issue of housing itself, there was a time the federal government was involved in the housing business when it comes to affordable housing, cooperatives. And then they got out of that business. Partially it was because they wanted a war on the deficit and debt uh, in the 90s. But uh, it's been a long time since the federal government was directly involved in housing to a certain degree. Is it fair to say that no matter what plan you introduce or the other guys, with the federal liberals, the NDP introduced, this is not going to be done in one four-year term. This is a uh, probably a 10-year minimum um, uh, challenge before all Canadians to drive down house prices, or at the very least, introduce more supply. Look, it will take some time, but I, I think we've got to start to give ourselves a kick in the butt in this country. We always give ourselves, we're making so many excuses for ourselves. Why does it take so long? Why does it take seven years to get a building permit for something in this country? It doesn't work that way in other places around the world. In Singapore, you can register a business in 15 minutes. In parts of the United States, you can get a building permit in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, we're, we're, becoming, we're moving back to the Stone Age here. And we've just said, we've just accepted that the bureaucracy can be slow and incompetent, and that's just the way it is. I don't accept that. And we, have, we need a government that says we're going to pay for results, we're going to fire bureaucrats that don't deliver those results, we want outcomes, we want the government to get out of the way so our builders can build. We've got the land, the labor, the lumber. We, you know, one example, the Squamish people in Vancouver are building 6,000 units of housing on 10 acres of land. They never would have been able to do it if City Hall was in charge, but they had a reserve. So the reserve could approve its own building. And that's why 6,000 people are getting a home. Why don't we do what the Squamish did? Squamish could do it. Why can't Vancouver? Mr. Palio, let's uh, talk about one of the other issues that are front and centre for Canadians today, and that's immigration. We're a country of immigrants. I'm an immigrant. I'm the son of immigrants. You're married to an immigrant. We were all descendants of immigrants. But there is a tremendous amount of concern in this country about our immigration levels. 500,000 immigrants coming into this country by 2025 every year. There's a significant amount of international students as well. Just yesterday in Ontario, we heard of the amount of students that the college system there is reliant upon. I'm talking about international students, as they are here uh, in British Columbia. My question to you is a simple one. How would you fix our immigration system? Well, on the college system, I would require that colleges and universities prove they have housing to meet the demand of the students they want to welcome. I understand they want to make money, but you can't bring kids here if you don't have houses for them. We've got kids coming from around the world, forced to live under bridges and on street corners, crammed 16 into an apartment. Uh, They end up in gangs, addicted to drugs, uh, and suffering great loss many of them dying, actually. We need, I'm going to require universities and colleges prove they have housing for the students they bring in. Second, I'm going to shut down the fake colleges that are offering phony diplomas just to get kids here and get them into low-paid or sometimes black market jobs. We've got to end the fraud in the, the international student system. That's where the big numbers are. It's, it's not actually permanent immigration. It's the temporary immigration of students and temporary foreign workers, and we need to root out the fraud in that system. Secondly, we need to link immigration numbers to the number of houses that have been built in the preceding years and the number of doctors that have been added to the healthcare system. Humans need healthcare and housing. It doesn't matter where they're from. 
So if we're bringing people here, we have, we have to increase our population, we have to have increased our housing stock and our healthcare resources by an equal or greater amount. Uh, and so we need to link the federal immigration targets to the amount of healthcare and housing available, and that's what my election platform will specify when we run for election uh, in the in this years ahead. I, I find the immigration que- question and conversation quite interesting in that we have a lack of housing. I think we're building about two hundred twenty thousand houses, uh, housing units per year. Uh, we require about eight hundred thousand a year, roughly. And yet we have an immigration system on steroids at this point. Over the next few years, I'm talking next two or three years, something has to give. Either we build more or reduce the amount of uh, students uh, in in this case, or it may be immigration or refugees, whatever it may be, we have to reduce, be it temporarily, permanently, whatever you want to have that, whatever you want to do. Ultimately, something has to give here. Is that a fair comment in your mind? Like this, this present system cannot continue for another two or three years. Yes, it is. The math is very simple. You increase the population by 1.2 million. You need 500,000 homes. Why? Because we have about 2.6 people per home in Canada. That's how we spread ourselves out in this country. So you need a home, one new home built for every 2.6 people added to our population just to stay at the current level of housing affordability which is already horrible. So you would need just a bit, just to accommodate 1.2 million people and keep housing as miserable as it is today, you'd need to build about 500,000 homes. We're building 200,000. That means that there's a grow, every year we do this, we're adding 300,000 families who don't have a home. That's just the arithmetic. So either you build more homes or you grow the population slower or some combination thereof. But you're absolutely right when you say that the mathematics do not add up. It's not about ideology. It's not about even public policy or partisanship. It's about strict math. As Pythagoras said, numbers rule the universe. Uh, the immigration number itself, 500,000 immigrants uh, officially coming to this country in 2025. What would you, what do you consider the right number? If 500,000, some Canadians are saying are, is quite high, very high, it's the first time we'll be hitting that number as official immigrants. Uh, if you were prime minister, what number do you think we should be allowing into this country? So I, 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 I'm not going to reveal my election platform on, the, on this call, but I will say that my plat- when I do reveal it, it will include a plan to link the immigration numbers for the coming year to the number of homes built and doctors hired in the prior year. So that way we, we bring in the number of people we can house and care for. Um, humans need health care and housing. And unless you increase the, those faster than the population grows, then we'll have shortages of both. So my platform will not be focused on pie-in-the-sky dreams like you know, making Canada a 100-million-person country like Trudeau has committed to with his Century Initiative. It'll be focused on making sure we have enough health care and housing for our own people first and for newcomers as well. 
Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we've been in the midst of a conversation with Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Today, the Canadian Press uh, picked him as the uh, 2023 Newsmaker of the Year. Now, Mr. Polyev, let's move on to another issue, which uh, is near and dear to to Canadians, especially here uh, for those of us here in British Columbia, and that's climate change. One of the reasons you're doing very well in the polls is you've been really focused on the issue of carbon tax. What would a climate change program under your re- leadership look like if you were the prime minister of this country? Technology and not taxes. We need to lower the cost of carbon-free energy rather than raising the cost of the traditional energy we still need. So uh, right now Trudeau is saying, well, he's going to keep punishing people who drive cars and heat homes and uh, eat farm-grown food. Uh, by taxing all of those activities with a 61 cents a liter tax. That is not fair because people still need traditional energy uh, and will for the many years to come. My approach is the inverse. Let us speed up the approval of hydroelectric dams and safe, efficient, emissions-free nuclear power that we can feed our grid emissions-free. Let's mine the lithium, cobalt, graphite, copper, and other minerals of electrification here in Canada, rather than buying them from China, where they burn coal, to refine them. Let's export Canada's clean, civilian-grade uranium so that foreign countries can open nuclear power plants rather than burning coal. And let's sell our clean Canadian natural gas, which we can liquefy with the lowest environmental footprint in the world, due to the fact that we have clean hydro to power the plants, cold weather to uh, do some of the liquefaction for us and shorter shipping distances to Asia and Europe than the rest of North America has. Let's use those advantages to give countries lower emitting forces, uh, forms of energy. That way we can bring home powerful paychecks to our people. But what's clear is our people cannot pay a 61 cent a liter carbon tax. You think the carbon tax is high now. Trudeau and the NDP want to quadruple it. I think what are, what's going to happen to the farmer that's going to be spending literally a half a million dollars on carbon taxes? He either goes out of business or he raises his prices on consumers. How are our seniors going to feed themselves when we have a tax that high? It's not realistic. Let's ax the tax and use technology and not taxes to bring home lower emissions and prices. Do you, do you think the carbon tax has done absolutely nothing when it comes to changing behavior uh, in regards to switching to cleaner, let's say, buying EVs or hybrids? Do you think it's just been an outright failure, the whole carbon tax plan? It has. And uh, what little change in behavior you get by punishing people is cancelled out by the fact that we're now we're now sending more of our production to more polluting jurisdictions. I've got a tomato farm in my riding that's paying carbon taxes on the CO2 they release into their greenhouse, even though that CO2 is absorbed by the plant life. So it's now more uh, affordable to buy a Mexican tomato in my Ottawa community than it is to buy the local tomato. So we're sending a price signal to people to buy the tomato that had to be trucked and trained burning fossil fuels across the entire continent rather than buying the more environmentally friendly local farm produce. That is not good for the environment, sure not good for our farmers. And that's true across our economy. We're pushing production to more polluting foreign jurisdictions and then importing those things to our country. I would ask the tax, bring home the production to Canada and do it more efficiently and green and more environmentally friendly here at home. 
Uh, Mr. Polyev, I just have a couple more questions for you here. As a Canadian Prime Minister, uh, I just want to talk on for, foreign policy just, policy just for a second here. Uh, prime Minister, the next Prime Minister, is going to ha- have to deal with a very dangerous and fast-changing world. Um, you've got the rise of India. You've got an increasingly, increasingly brazen <coughs> Um, uh, China, you have Russian aggression, you have challenges in the Middle East. Uh, what does foreign policy uh, under your leadership look like moving forward? Uh, we have huge challenges with China. We've got police forces, legal police stations in this country. And with India, you have allegations of one of our Canadian citizens uh, being killed by a foreign power like India. What does foreign policy look like under a Pierre Paul Yev government? I will use what I call the bring it home doctrine, which means let's stand up for our country before all other countries. Let's stand up for Canada. Um, We sure we can stand uh, for human rights and our values around the world. We also have to focus on what what it means for Canadians here at home. So, for example, we need to repatriate more energy and resource production to our country and export it to the world to displace dirty dictators and let this so that they can't use oil and gas to power their aggression. We need to cut back on aid that ends up in the hands of dictators, terrorists, and multinational bureaucracies, and put that money into rebuilding our military in order to keep ourselves safe and secure in an increasingly dangerous world. Let's keep foreign actors out of this country, uh, foreign governments, I mean, by bringing in a foreign agent registry that would require anyone who works for a foreign regime to manipulate our politics or influence our society to uh, register and have their name exposed on a public website. They do this in the States and Australia. I don't know why it's been taking the government so long to do it here. In other words, let's bring home control of our democracy and let's put our own people first. My final question to you, you've picked up a lot of support from young people, uh, labor, some would argue a lot of non-traditional conservative supporters. Uh, how do you plan to balance uh, those supporters and their needs with some of your more traditional supporters who may have other perspectives and other wants uh, as voters? How do you balance that moving forward as we head into uh, an election in 2025 or earlier? Common sense. It's the same common sense values that I appeal to, to people of all age groups. Uh, so uh, that means for example, jail and not bail for repeat violent offenders to bring safety to our streets, um, giving treatment, not more deregulated, decriminalized and dangerous drugs that have caused the chaos in our communities. It means respecting hunters and sport shooters, but in, while going after gangsters and gun smugglers, it means um, cutting income tax. One of the things young people say is they want a lower income tax bill so that they're rewarded for their hard work. It turns out pensioners want the same thing. These common sense values unite all Canadians. This was the common sense consensus of both liberals and conservatives before Justin Trudeau came along with a very radical agenda. So it's the common sense of the of the common people united for our common home. Mr. Polyev, I want to say thank you so much for your time today. You've made a lot of time for our show uh, throughout this year, and I always appreciate uh, you dropping by. Uh, whenever you are in Vancouver. I want to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Many blessings to your family and Merry Christmas to all of your, to you and your, your station and all of your listeners. Bye now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to there, of course, is ACDC's iconic song, Thunderstruck. The song was recorded at uh, Vancouver's Little Mountain Sound Studio. And today, Mayor Ken Sim and councillors officially declared December 19th as Little Mountain Sound Studios Day in Vancouver. Now, it was founded in 1972. Little Mountain uh, became an iconic hub for chart-topping recordings of bands like ACDC, Aerosmith, Metallica, and Bon Jovi. Uh, Mayor uh, Ken Sim says the studio is a symbol of Vancouver. Vancouver swagger in the world of music. Of course, he would say swagger. Well, tonight uh, on BC One, Global News Broadcaster Squire Barnes will be airing the special on the studio called Little Mountain Big Sound. And he joins us now. Squire, thanks for speaking to us today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. So what convinced you to do this new special on Little Mountain Sound? Well, it started five years ago with just one three-minute story for the news hour about Little Mountain Sound and then sort of grew out from there. But the reason is, I mean, I love music and I grew up in this town, but I didn't realize, maybe it was just me, but I think others didn't realize as well, that a lot of this great music was coming from West 7th Avenue in Vancouver, near Canby Street, because that's where Little Mountain Sound was, and it's still a studio, but it's called something else now. And the number of records, especially in the 1980s, that came out of there um, were incredible. And the records that came out, some of them are legendary, like Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi was made exclusively at that studio. Uh, Three Aerosmith albums were made there. Um, Loverboy's first two records really got everybody's attention when it came to Little Mountain Sound. And if... um, you love the song Thunderstruck, and everybody knows the opening guitar riff. That was done at Little Mountain Sound in Vancouver as well. What was it about that space uh, that attracted these bands? Well, it was space and people. Um, you know, a lot of studios, I'm guessing, are kind of the same. They all have basically the same equipment. These guys were always up to date on their equipment. Just with the building itself, there was one part of the building that they stumbled on that became uh, a key element to the sound. And that is in the back alley uh, of the building is a loading bay where, you know, there's a tin door that goes up. And if you have to move equipment in, you know, recording equipment or what have you, you put it in there. And what they discovered early on is that they put drums in a band in that room and it had a really cool echoey sound to it. So it sounded bigger. Uh, Brian Adams did an album there called Reckless. And he brought in a a very famous producer from New York named Bob Clearmountain. And Bob Clearmountain saw what they were doing with this loading bay, and he changed it up a bit. He put the drums beside the door of the loading bay and then put the microphones inside it. So the drums sounded almost cavernous and huge. Bands started hearing these records, and especially drummers, and they're like, hey, we want those big drum sounds too, because that was very 80s. That was a real 80s sound. And so a lot of bands started coming here. But the other thing that attracted them to Little Mountain Sound was there were unbelievably good engineers there and unbelievably good producers. The two main producers being Bruce Fairburn, who is no longer with us, 
and Bob Rock. So they wanted to work with these guys, and they were in a great space. And as I said, the other people around them, these engineers, uh, were brilliant as well. And everything just seemed to come together at the same time. And the word got out in the music industry that this was the place to come if you wanted to make a great record. Could you replicate replicate that today uh, with the the technical equipment and some of these many of these artists, uh, you know, having their own uh, studios in their house? A lot more can be done with technology. Uh, do you think w- what happened in Little Mountain during that era could be replicated today? I'm going to selfishly say no. Now, I'm not a sound engineer. I'm sure with computers and stuff, you could get close. But it's interesting you asked that question because that was a question we asked uh, one of the producers who now works in Los Angeles, um, who grew up learning the trade at Little Mountain. And he said, you know, you can try with computers and things like that to get close to, say, the drum sound they got out of the loading bay, but you never get it exactly because that's an organic sound that for some reason a computer, at least he doesn't think, can accurately repeat. It can get close, but it can't get the the organic sound that that had. There's actually some records uh, that were produced there that if you listen very closely, when the song fades out, mm-hmm. you can actually hear trucks going up the back alley. <laughs> Honestly, you can hear like, what is that noise? It's actually trucks going up the back alley off West 7th. That because the amazing. door was quite thin. It's just a tin door. That is amazing. That is, uh, that is uh, truly amazing. I guess it partially with that type of music and then where the city was, it was a bit of a perfect storm as well, culturally, uh, for Little Mountain to succeed. Yeah, it was. It, it, um, it, most of the, the, the great records that were made there are rock records. And, you know, you could say hard rock or, you know, metal. I mean, Motley Crue made Dr. Feel Good there. And uh, as we said, you know, Aerosmith made three records there and, and Bon Jovi and ACDC and Loverboy and, and many others. Um, you know, the 80s. It was a time of, of many exotic dancers in this city <laughs> and, and strip clubs. I mean, let's be real. And, um, for example, Bon Jovi, who I think had made a couple of records before they came to Vancouver to work with Bob Rock and Bruce Fairburn at Little Mountain to make Slippery When Wet, became very um, enamored with Number 5 Orange. They would spend a lot of their off time at the Number 5 Orange. And the story goes that the title of the album, Slippery When Wet, was something the disc jockey there would say so the exotic dancers on the stage would not slip. Like, oh, be careful, really? ladies, it's slippery when wet. That's apparently how they got the title for the record, because they were there so much. Uh, Squire, let's talk a little bit about, we talked a little bit about the history of it. Why did Little Mountain close? Well, the, the ownership changed, and, um, and I think that, you know, the rent in the building went way up, and a lot of things just sort of conspired. The other thing, too, is that the producers... Uh, Bob and Bruce especially, were, were so well-known by this point that bands wanted to work with them, but a lot of them wanted to work with them where they were. For example, um, Metallica's Black Album was partially made at Little Mountain, but it was mainly made in Los Angeles with Bob Rock as the producer. They wanted to stay in their area. So a lot of bands didn't want to come here as much. The other thing, too, is you know, people get fickle mm-hmm. in the music industry, and you know, suddenly in the 90s, Seattle was the big place with the grunge music. 
So everybody wanted to go to Seattle. And suddenly, you know, Little Mountain was kind of seen as a place for the 80s, not for the 90s. And even though you could pretty much do anything in any studio, it lost its luster that way. But certainly its, its place in music history is, you know, solidified with the records that came out of there. And as I said, the building is still there. It's 201 West 7th if you ever drive by it. And it is very much a part of music history. You just, it's just sort of a nondescript building when you drive by it now. But it's still a studio and it's called Hipposonic Sound now. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? You raise a very good point that uh, in the 90s, things uh, we, uh, you know, was, were more, more fo- focused towards grunge and that scene and that sound. And uh, it's very difficult for a city to be the place or one particular studio, uh, a recording studio, to be the, the place. Um, it, it, like, there's lots of influences that have to sort of come in place where you've got this perfect, perfect storm where Little Mountain was able to do that, and its talent that works there had to, was able to do that, and the city was at a, certain, at a certain space as well. Yeah, you're right. Everything came together at the right time. And really, too, um, what got everybody's attention to Little Mountain was the first two Loverboy albums, which were big in the States, and became, became um, they were sort of the beacon for that studio because Bon Jovi heard the Loverboy records and loved them and thought, hey, let's go work with those guys in Vancouver. And of course, that record is huge. That record takes off, Slippery When Wet. You know, even to this day, like Living on a Prayer, you know, an, an evergreen song that will never go out of style. But it's, you know, then other bands hear that. Oh, let's go to that place. So everything starts following in the place and everybody starts coming here. And if they're successful, the word gets out. But eventually, like anything else, I think it just sort of fades away and and they move on to something else, and something else becomes a scene, which in the 90s was Seattle, and then it just keeps... And now Seattle's not the scene, obviously. Yeah, Things not, change. I, I'm, I'm too old to know what the scene is now, but it's... Uh, you know, you've gone to hip-hop. Pop is always popular, but it's a different different era, different time. Uh, the folks that you spoke to, uh, what, what, were the, what, was sort of, what were the stories from them from that era? I'm very curious. Well, they... Um, First of all, they they were quite happy that somebody wanted to talk to them about it because, you know, there's been all these uh, you know stories over the years about famous studios like Abbey Road, obviously, being probably the one most people know, even though, again, you think about that, you know, Jazz, it's like Abbey Road was huge in the 60s because that was the Beatles studio mm-hmm. and Pink Floyd did Dark Side of the Moon there. But, you don't you know, you don't hear a lot of big records coming out of Abbey Road anymore. Um but the people who spoke, you know, had terrific anecdotes. For example, um, I'll give you a fast anecdote on the song Thunderstruck. Mm-hmm. So when ACDC arrived in Vancouver to record an album called Razor's Edge at Little Mountain, they had done a lot of the, the tapes already. They had already sort of recorded their songs, and they came to, to basically, you know, put the finishing touches on them, work with Bruce Fairburn at Little Mountain, and sort of just finish them up. Well, they played what they had. And one of the songs they had was Thunderstruck. But Thunderstruck was not the way we hear it now. There was no guitar intro. The legendary and iconic guitar riff that you hear throughout that song wasn't on it at all. They played it for Bruce Fairburn, and Bruce Fairburn said, yeah, yeah, it's a nice song, but it needs an introduction. At which point Angus Young said, hey, I got, a, I got something I've been working on. And they basically plugged him in while he was sitting in the control room, not even in the studio. And he apparently lit a cigarette. And for as long as a cigarette burned, he played that guitar riff over and over. Oh, wow. 
So what you hear on the record is the only time he played it. He just one-timed it all the way through, and they decided it's so good, instead of just using it as an intro, let's just dip it in and out of the whole song. That's why it's in the whole song. Oh, wow. So Man. little anecdotes like that. And so there, you know, Vancouver and a Vancouver producer, Bruce Fairburn, you know, gave the world an iconic rock song just by suggesting, hey, I think this needs an intro. Well, I th- I'm glad you're doing this new special. I, Judging by the stories you're telling me, you could write a book on the studio as well, uh, based on what uh, what occurred at Little Mountain. And just for our, our listeners, uh, what time is the special airing tonight? Uh, it'll air at uh, 10 o'clock on BC1. At 10 o'clock on BC1. Well, I look yes. forward to watching it. Thank you so much for your time today. And I, let, yep. let me just add one thing very quickly. If you're driving around tonight or you're looking outside your window and you see like BC Place and, and Science World looking like it's gold or platinum, mm-hmm. that's the city doing that in honor of Little Mountain. Ah, because as we said, uh, today is Little Mountain Sound Studios Day in Vancouver. Yes, and so the gold and platinum records, gold and platinum lights. Hey, that is great. Well, if I don't speak to you after today, Merry Christmas to you, Happy New Year. Same to you. And we'll talk yes, very same soon. To you. All the best, Squire. And everybody else. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.